Hi everyone, welcome to the Living Well podcast, where we dive into all kinds of topics so that we can discover what it truly means to live well. Whether it's nutrition, exercise, mindset, or spirituality, figuring out what's truly healthy can feel like a never-ending cycle. With this podcast, we hope to provide a deeper insight on the root problem with health in America, taking a more holistic approach and having genuine conversations with women from all walks of life who actively strive to live well. For our new listeners, my name is Michaela Lewicki. And my name is Francesca Dyke, and we are your hosts. We're so glad you can join us today. So today's episode is a continuation of our conversation with Jenny Noche, where we have been discussing hormone health and fertility. And we'll include links to her information in the show notes below. We are so lucky to have her here today, and we can't wait for you guys to listen to this episode. This episode is part two, where we are diving into fertility awareness. And be sure to check out last week's episode, part one, all about hormone health. So starting off with our first general question, what is fertility awareness and does it even matter if you're not trying to get pregnant currently? Yeah, so um, I'm certified in FEM and I love FEM because they're one of their mantras is ovulation as a sign of health. Um, And that kind of goes into your question of how much should it matter if you're not trying to get pregnant. And it's really because your cycle, ovulation, that's your fifth vital sign. That's how we know that we are having healthy hormonal activity, if we are having a healthy cycle. So if you are um, having regular cycles or you're not ovulating, um, you know, a lot of women just, actually a lot of women celebrate when they don't have their period because they're like, woohoo, I don't have to deal with that this month. And actually that's a really big health concern because like I said in the beginning, we need estrogen and progesterone for so many other things than just ovulation or getting pregnant um and so ovulation is how those hormones are produced and so by tracking your cycle so if someone doesn't know what fertility awareness is um it's when you're able to track the biomarkers of your cycle so menstruation the different phases of your cycle um cervical mucus and then possible secondary biomarkers like an lh surge or um temperature rise um that can tell you directly your hormonal activity so it's a lot more than just tracking your period on a period tracking app um it tells you a lot more about what's going on with your hormonal activity and i think every i think we should every woman ever should be taught how to track their cycle and what it indicates about their hormones like freshman year of high school because we would detect a lot more hormonal imbalances way before they ever cause infertility or, you know, other health concerns. We could nip it right in the bud a lot faster. Um, So I think everyone should be charting their cycle, um, like, ASAP. (laughs) Wow. Jenny, something I'm really interested in is how um, basically, like, um, sexual education is taught to children and um, I was blessed enough to, um, I was a combination of like homeschool and then I also went to Catholic school, but, um, so I never really experienced the, like the public school sex ed, but I feel like mm-hmm. kids in middle school are just told like, this is what happens. And then once, maybe once they get to like eighth grade or their freshman year of high school, they're just told, um, 
this is this is what you do and here is here's a condom and here's birth control um and mm-hmm. we don't need to make it an entire discussion about that personally i think that birth control wrecks your body and um <laughs> so but so you said that you think that women sh- girls should be taught about their fertility freshman year what would you say is like like do you have any insights on a proper way to um go about that like would you say that sex ed should be more focused on um fertility awareness what are your thoughts so with my fem training they actually teach us teen fem so oh, how wow. to teach this okay. to teenagers mm-hmm. um so it's just a little bit different of the training but you're really teaching them still how to track their biomarkers and what that indicates about their health like Again, you're teaching it as, as someone would say, you want a healthy blood pressure, it's, you want a healthy cycle. Mm-hmm. So it, you know, kind of takes away the cycle from necessarily, like you, you know, we'll associate it with fertility as well, but you're really understanding it as a sign of health. Okay. Um, and so mm-hmm. also in Team Sam, um, they also have uh, the ability to have like the guys learn about it. So they, so basically how it could work and how they've actually implemented in some countries, like uh, the Philippines have actually done this. They've had several schools implement um, teen fen as part of their curriculum, which is really, really cool. Um, wow. And so they split the girls and the boys into different classrooms. And the girls learn about, obviously, their cycle, what it means about their hormones. And they do learn about, like, boys' health. And the boys learn about their hormones, um, what they mean. But they also teach them about girls' hormones. And it's really powerful because boys then understand that the girls are going through, you know, way different hormonal changes than the boys and makes them respect them more because wow. boys' hormones, wow. I don't think you see my hand, but it, their hormones are flat lines. Yeah. They don't really go up and down, whereas women's hormones, they're going up and down. Lots of things are happening. Um, and so when men see this, and I see this too when I teach, because um, I, I also teach couples fertility awareness um, before marriage, and I always encourage, like, the fiancé um, to be there and, you know, just they're learning about, like, wow, like, I have a lot more respect for women because they go through a lot more than we do. Mm-hmm. And women don't even understand that fully. I mean, they know they get a period and men don't, but they don't really understand how different they are on a hormonal level. Um, so that's how I think, wow. you know, it could be implemented, like, it could really change not only women and how they understand their cycles and their health concerns later in life, but I think it could also shape um, men and their understanding of women. No kidding. That's incredible. That wow. So cool. Yeah, we need that in America. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. That, that's Whereas, incredible. There are some, like, few people that are trying, uh, like, teen, there are people who just specifically teach, like, teen them. Um so it's, it's definitely needed, and like, and you know, my personal two goals: I will be sitting down my daughters when they're mm-hmm. when they get their period, and like giving them the whole them training, yeah, <laughs> so awesome. they know it. I sat yeah. down both of my sisters and gave it to both of them, um, even though they were like, "This is weird," um, <laughs> no. like it's not weird, no. <laughs> but it's so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my parents they teach NFP. Michaela's parents do yep. as well. Um, so we Most just people. we've been raised to like just have an appreciation for that. And I'm currently working for a pro-life organization. And the next step that we see is that women or mm-hmm. um, like high school age kids need to be aware of this. And we need a like mm-hmm. renewed understanding of women's fertility and sex ed in general. So this is really empowering. I love the yeah. Philippines story too. That's incredible. Totally. I wish yeah, I knew about really, that. Really cool. mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, don't. I think that's what pretty much everyone says after they go through the training. They're always like, "I wish that I knew this mm-hmm. so long ago." Yeah. Um, because a lot of people too wouldn't have ended up taking birth control. Even myself, um, if I knew I wouldn't have taken birth control, um, but I didn't know. You know, yeah. so when you know better, you do better. <laughs> totally. So, kind of going off of that, would you say that infertility is more of an issue today than in the past decades? And if so, why is that the case? Yeah, so according to the CDC, yes, infertility is on the rise, not just my personal mm-hmm. opinion that it is. Um, we are seeing it in the data actually be on the rise. About one in four couples will experience infertility. Um, and the use of like uh, assisted reproductive technology like IVF or um, IUIs um, have been increasing 5 to 10% annually. Um, so we do know that infertility is on the rise and why I think it's a really multifaceted answer um, it's very complex I don't think it's just oh because everyone's using birth control um, that can certainly be a factor but one thing that I always think about um, there are a lot of people who demonize birth control which I totally understand if anybody doesn't know like listeners how birth control works it gives you high doses of synthetic estrogen and progesterone which suppresses your natural production of hormones. So you are shutting down your reproductive system. It is shutting it down. Wow. Um, so that is um, really not a great thing, um, especially there are also just um, just like high doses of progesterone without synthetic estrogen, um, which that can also pose an issue because now you have no estrogen, and we know how protective estrogen is for our brain and for our bones. Um, and synthetic also works very differently than our natural hormones. So, yes, there are some risks. And you can even say list a ton of side effects and risks on the, you know, you know, insert of birth control. So it's not news to anybody, um, you know, but no one is actually educated in the doctor's office about the side effects technically. Um, but going back to infertility, one thing that I always think about is why someone was on birth control in the first place. I believe this statistic is 60 to 70% of women who go on birth control is because of a gynecological issue, meaning that they were having painful, really painful periods, heavy bleeding, um, acne. They were having issues, hormonal imbalance issues, way before they went on birth control. So birth control doesn't treat any hormone issues. It just covers it up so that when they come off of birth control, that hormone issue comes right back. And that could be is what's contributing to infertility is my point is that all these people who are on birth control for, um, you know, hormonal issues to begin with, it's not that um, birth control is necessarily causing infertility. It can cause some issues, which is another conversation. But my my point is that you could have already had these issues before birth control. Um, and secondly, what is also going on, we have the standard American diet creating lots of inflammation. Um, my capstone research paper for my master's is actually on inflammation and infertility. And we are seeing that increased amounts of inflammation is linked to infertility. Um, and inflammation is going to be caused by nutrient deficiencies, um, imbalanced blood sugar, insulin resistance. Um, it can also be caused by infections or poor gut health because 80% of your immune system is in your gut. Um, so any inflammation is also going to impact um, fertility. So also not to mention, we're also seeing studies showing how um BPA, all these toxins in our environment actually cause, uh, not to get too into it, but mitochondrial dysfunction, which plays also a role in infertility. Mm-hmm. So 
there's so many factors contributing to infertility, um, but it really boils down to the way in which our marriage lifestyle is. Does that make sense? <laughs> that is yeah. fascinating. So wow. there's a direct link with like your diet and infertility is what you're saying too. A, a thousand. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Oh my goodness, yeah. So, I, yeah. <laughs> and the fact that, um, I like the, well, I appreciate the difference between, I feel like um, it's easy to say, like, oh, birth control can cause this, but that's interesting that it it just covers up a problem that, like, I feel like maybe doc, yeah, maybe I'll just, like, slam doctors right now, but doctors often don't know how to address fertility problems, and so they do just slap that um, Band-Aid of birth control on it. And then women are never fully healed. And then when they do want to start having kids, they take the Band-Aid off and the wound is still there. And, yeah. So, Mm -hmm. wow. So, we need to start educating women earlier on about how to address those hormone issues and how to, um, like, acknowledge that it's not normal in your body and then fix it. Yeah, exactly. And it's really sad to me that a lot of doctors are just not educated in school about I've actually had a friend go to an OBGYN and they did not know what um, fertility awareness was, was and that what? you could track your biomarkers and that could tell you about your hormones and your fertility. Wow. Um, that is so concerning. <laughs> yeah, that's really Yeah, concerning. so they are not taught this, let alone in medical school, um, but not even in a residency that specializes in women's health. <laughs> Why do you think that so, is? Whoa. Um, I really couldn't say. Um. I don't know why medical schools do the things that they do. They have less than five, some schools less than 10 hours, some schools less than five hours of training in nutrition. Mm-hmm. And we know that nutrition okay. plays a role in mm-hmm. the most chronic diseases in America right now. Um, and we know that only 13% of Americans are actually metabolically healthy. Um, and that meta- your metabolism has to do with your nutrition and your lifestyle. So I don't know. I think honestly that this is kind of like my the philosophical thinking or mm-hmm. my theory um is that really when medicine was evolving we were mainly treating viruses and bacteria right that's what was killing people right. it was our yep. unsanitary living conditions that were leading to viruses bacteria that were killing people so medicine was really evolving to treat those acute illnesses but now that our lifestyle that american lifestyle has turned into um chronic diseases that are due to lifestyle the, med- the conventional medicine approach didn't change to adjust. So it kind of was like, here's the diagnosis of pneumonia, and then here's the, ba- the you know the antibiotics to treat it. And so that is how it turned into treating all the chronic diseases. Like, oh, here's your disease name. Here's a medicine to fix it. Um, Interesting. Because, wow. you, know, you know, those bacteria, it wasn't really about nutrition all that much. So... I think it's more of that's why it ended up developing. I don't think it's because they, they hate people. <laughs> yeah, um, no, but, of course. Um, and honestly, fertility awareness is pretty new. Um, it was really discovered uh, in the late 1990s, um, like, or late 1980s. Mm-hmm. I don't know, late 1900s. Um, it, it's not like this has been around since, like, the 1800s. Um, it, it's pretty recent, and it takes about... I mean, in the medical world, it takes about 17 years for something that's published in research to be then actually um, practiced. Um, So there's a huge lag um, between research and then clinical practice. That is so interesting. So would you say (laughs) that, like, generally speaking, 
like how do you know if you're infertile if you're not like trying to get pregnant or would you say there's just it's and that, I know that's a loaded question but um <laughs> it seemed that what I'm picking up from a lot of the things that you've been saying that ovulation is like a very very crucial thing so if that's suppressed or it's not you're not able to ovulate then that's going to directly relate to your fertility would you say that's true yeah so what ovulation is is that you have in your ovaries um follicles develop with the egg inside okay right your the egg is what meets the sperm ovulation is when the egg is released from the follicles now into your fallopian tube and now it's able to be fertilized by sperm so ovulation is a necessary 1000 percent necessary precursor to be able to get pregnant so by tracking cervical mucus is a way for you to track your estrogen levels. Your estrogen needs to rise appropriately over three to four days to then trigger um, the LH surge, which is what actually causes the egg to be released from the follicle. And you can actually test the LH surge. This is what STEM teaches. Um, it teaches you how to track cervical mucus, and it teaches you how to um, use LH testing to understand um, the around the time that you ovulate. Um, and so in this way, then that's how you can use it for getting pregnant because you really only have about a six, six, seven day fertile window um, each cycle to be able to get pregnant. So um, when someone's trying to get pregnant, we need to narrow down that fertile window for them. Um, But additionally, not only do you need to narrow down the fertile window, we need to make sure they're having a fertile window, meaning Mm -hmm. they're having healthy ovulatory activity. So they have healthy cervical mucus, they have a healthy luteal phase, which indicates healthy progesterone. Um, and those are, you cannot confirm ovulation 100% without an ultrasound. Um, but through cycle charting, LA testing, we can kind of say, you know, whether you're more likely to have ovulated versus not. Does that make sense? No, yeah, yeah. totally. Wow. So you should be tracking all of those things. Uh, is that in direct correlation with what you were saying earlier when you were a freshman in high school? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Wow, so interesting. I think you, yeah. You, the LA testing, like, kind of, I like to see it in everyone who I'm working with because I really want to know what their ovulatory activity is. But, you know, if you're someone not really trying to, like, get pregnant or using it for family planning purposes, then the secondary biomarkers, like, tracking our temperature um, or LA testing is kind of like, nice. it's kind of like a nice to do, but you don't have to do it versus, I would say, like, noticing the phases of your cycle tracking your cervical mucus those are what I would definitely suggest everyone do interesting yeah Hmm. okay so um another question about infertility and how to manage it so say a couple Mm -hmm. um is diagnosed as being infertile um I feel like you're offered a variety of options and one of those is um usually IVF um but we've also been looking in or um Michaela and I have been like Michaela's taking embryology and I took embryology a couple years ago um, but mm-hmm. in that class, we learned about NAPRO technology. Do you know anything mm-hmm. about that? And um, would you be able to expand a little bit on the difference between NAPRO versus IVF and maybe the benefits? Yeah. So, um, yes, I have worked with physicians closely um, with Na- who practice NAPRO or certified um, in NAPRO. And they, um, NAPRO technology is, they actually, a pre- you have to be tracking your cycle. Mm-hmm. They use Creighton as their fertility awareness um, method. And so they can um, look at your biomarkers, tell, it tells them about your fertility. They use a lot of lab testing. 
Um, and then they try to basically simulate a cycle for you. Um, so they are trying to, so they will give someone maybe estradiol if they need to increase estrogen for ovulation to occur. They will induce ovulation by using a medication called Clomid um, that will actually cause ovulation to occur. Um, so if someone's not having it, like they are not ovulating, they can induce ovulation. Um, and then they also use things like progesterone um, to help um, maintain the pregnancy and stuff like that. So it's kind of like stimulating um, a cycle. Um, and without... this is for IVF? No, that's Napro. Oh, okay. Napro. Okay. IVF is when they are actually taking out the egg, they are getting the sperm, they are putting together um, a baby in a lab. And then, so they make mm -hmm. that embryo in the lab, and then they put those embryos back in the woman through a surgical procedure, and then that's what gets her pregnant. So, okay. did that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, yeah, petri dish. the goal of yes. NAPRO is that, you know, you are still able to have your own, in a sense, it's not natural, it's but it's a cycle, right? So you can get pregnant by having intercourse because mm -hmm. you've now induced ovulation to occur. Whereas okay. IVF, huh. you are making a pregnancy by like taking out the egg and taking the sperm, putting it together in the lab and putting it back in the woman. Um, so those are the differences. And so my personal approach is NAPRO is still a band-aid because it, it really touts itself as being a root cause approach of like it's helping you get your cycle back. But it's not because it's not actually oh. diving into the actual root causes of what's causing you not to ovulate. It's going to get you to ovulate. And, I've, you mm. know, a lot of people love NAPRO. It will get them to ovulate. It usually will get them pregnant. But it okay. still leaves them not understanding why they couldn't get pregnant. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah. So, so interesting. I didn't know that. I thought it, it, it went in and actually addressed the root cause and fixed it. But you're saying... That's like, what, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. That's what they, like, tout it as. Because they're oh, saying, they okay. say they are regulating fertility by regulating the cycle. But they're, mm. but it's, it's, to me, it's their, how they go about regulating the cycle. They're using medications. They're using still Band-Aid approaches. So, for example, I've had now three different people, um, they've had infections in their gut that was leading to tons of inflammation that was leading to hormone imbalances. We took care of their infections, and now their cycles are back, and now they're healthy. Oh, so wow, again, really yeah, so it's, it's to me, that's still not getting to the actual root cause. And I've had people come to me who are like, well, it took me still like a year or two to get pregnant with NAPRO because they're just using mm -hmm. these different medications to keep inducing ovulation. And now they want to get pregnant again, but their cycles are still irregular because they never address the actual root cause of what was actually causing their hormone imbalance. Wow. <laughs> so you're saying that with NAPRO, they just, it's just medicated. There's no like healthy or sorry, there's no like natural way to, I don't know, like increase ovulation or estrogen or whichever hormones well, there, you're deficient in. So there is a way to naturally do it, but they're not doing it is my point. Oh, they're using okay. medications. They may use some supplements to help. Uh, they may use supplements. They're usually someone who's going to suggest like a general, like, Sometimes they do like coenzyme co C10, vitamin E, a prenatal to like, so there's been studies to, to help um, to increase pregnancy outcomes. Um, but they're still using Clomid to induce ovulation. Um, and like I said, using progesterone because they have a lot of women that are coming to them are getting ovulation to happen. But if you don't have healthy estrogen levels, you don't have actually 
a true healthy ovulation, which is leading to still low progesterone. So then now a woman is supplementing with progesterone through her entire pregnancy because she actually can't make enough progesterone herself because she never actually fixed her underlying ovulatory dysfunction. So so interesting. That's where a lot of women are coming to me at. Um, They're like, I actually want to get to the actual, actual root cause of why I was not having healthy hormone activity. Yeah, totally. So would you say, and this might be a question that you're not able to answer or narrow down to, (laughs) but would you say that, um, like, what would you say is the most, or the hormone that is, like, the most efficient, like, the most common deficiency um, that leads to infertility for women? Progesterone. Okay. Okay. Because a lot of women are not having healthy ovulations. They may, so a little distinguisher here, and this is getting, like, a little in-depth, but think you guys can handle it um <laughs> you need an appropriate estrogen rise for healthy lh levels that lead to a healthy egg to be released but then also the empty follicle forms what is called the corpus luteum and the corpus luteum is actually its own organ so every cycle your body's actually forming its own organ um a little fact for you wow. and this corpus luteum supports is um, what is responsible for producing progesterone. This corpus luteum is responsible for producing enough progesterone for the first 11 to 12 weeks of pregnancy before the placenta forms and takes over hormonal production for the whole rest of the pregnancy. So what can happen is that if you have suboptimal estrogen um, or estrogen is just not rising appropriately, this leads to a, a poor LH surge, but LH is still secreted. And it causes ovulation to occur, which is the egg coming out of the follicle. And it attempts to luteinize the follicle to form the corpus luteum, but it's an unhealthy corpus luteum. So this corpus luteum produces suboptimal progesterone levels, but you did ovulate. So this is, this is the distinction of, like, you can ovulate, but it can still be an unhealthy ovulation. And that's what I talk a lot with people. And that's also what learning fertility awareness people can understand a lot better if you can ovulate, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you actually have a healthy ovulation. Um, so having suboptimal progesterone levels, progesterone's role is to maintain the uterine lining for pregnancy. So having low progesterone levels, you're not going to be able to maintain that uterine lining. Um, and therefore you can't maintain a pregnancy. So progesterone is pretty much, I think, the number one deficiency. Um, and, yeah, I hope that makes sense. No, <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> that just makes me have another question. So what – um, shoot, I just lost my question. Well, I had one that I can okay, ask go ahead, about. Go ahead. Um, so something that I've I tried to get into over the summer, and I think I'm finally getting into the swing of it, is cycle mm-hmm. syncing. And I don't know if that's something that you um, teach, <laughs> but um, like you said that you need to um, support your progesterone – um, levels. Mm-hmm. So would you say that like that's where cycles thinking could come in where like once once you've ovulated you need to switch your diet or is or is it more of something that you should just be eating healthy overall or can you switch it up to support your body yeah. during its um, hormonal changes? Yeah, so this is I feel like there's a lot of women in the like nutrition and fertility and the hormone world and they love cycle thinking. They're like huge fans. Mm-hmm. And I just, A, I just, I can't get on board because I just think it's way too complicated. Okay. First of all, mm-hmm. I can barely get people eating a healthy diet to begin with. And now you have to tell them that they, that they have to change the diet every single phase mm-hmm. of their cycle. Mm-hmm. Like, first of all, I just, 
I'm a big fan of sustainability and being realistic and, yeah. you know, being able to make things work. So that's where I kind of don't love it in a sense. Um, also, if we remember what I just said, what causes healthy progesterone? Healthy estrogen. So what mm. you're doing in your pre-ovulatory phase is going to affect your your progesterone. Not necessarily what you're doing when progesterone, like your luteal phase when progesterone is secreted. Does that make sense? Yeah. So yeah. now cortisol is, so cortisol is your stress hormone, and this can definitely drive down progesterone, whether mm. or not you had a healthy ovulation, um, because cortisol and progesterone are made from the same parent hormone, um, pregnenolone. So if you have high amounts of stress in that luteal phase, even if you had a healthy ovulation, it could still cause low progesterone. So that's my one caveat. But overall, again, what's going to lead to healthy progesterone is healthy estrogen ovulation. So what you're doing in that phase is more important um, than necessarily what you're doing when progesterone is being produced because the corpus luteum is responsible for producing progesterone. So um, I think, I think, you know, some things we can think of with cycle thinking. I like to think, I, I do teach about exercise um, in different phases mm-hmm. of your cycle because you will have differences in, like, your motivation and your energy. So that makes sense to me. But food-wise, I think get the foundations right first. Okay. And then if you get the foundations right, then maybe you can go through the cycle thinking first. Yeah. That makes so <laughs> um, much but sense. But not until yeah. you have the foundations right. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. something that, like... um. I just, I honestly learned about it through another podcast and then just on TikTok with um, people just saying, I feel like it was young girls, maybe like 19 and 20, and they're spewing all this knowledge of these are all the um, the minerals you need during day one through seven. Like, so it's so complicated. It's, it's really complicated and I feel like there's not a lot of actual facts out there. So that's, that's really good to know. Just, just get to the basics and focus on nutrition and min- mineral intake and you're going to be on the right path. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, I I mean, I don't do cycle thinking with my clients nutrition-wise mm-hmm. and I mean, I have I think I have pretty good results, so yeah, um yeah, I don't do. think it's and the thing, like I said, it's not saying it doesn't work or that it's not like, you know, like mm-hmm. other two things can be true at the same time. I always say that in the nutrition world. Mm-hmm. Um there's not ever a one size fits all. So like if your body likes cycle thinking and you're okay doing it, cool. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, but you also can know that you don't need to cycle thing to also have healthy hormones. Wow. Interesting. So interesting. Huh. So <laughs> going back one more time um, to what you were saying earlier about even if you are ovulating, that could that doesn't mean that it's, like, healthy ovulation. I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could, like, break down how you know that your uh, maybe your progesterone – you're deficient in that and what do you do that's not medication to um bring that back up yeah so okay so how do you know if you're not having a healthy cycle so um so first we have menstruation and you actually should be in stem training we have um actually parameters of what's considered heavy light and moderate bleeding so a healthy cycle is three to seven days of heavy to moderate bleeding and this is really actually essential for knowing how well your endometrial lining builds up and your estrogen levels because estrogen is responsible for building up your endometrial lining. Your endometrial lining is what sheds in menstruation. Therefore, the health and quality and quantity of your menstruation is telling you 
the health of your endometrial lining build up, thus your estrogen levels. Hope you follow that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always love to use myself as an example because I used to brag all the time about how light my menstruation was. I was like, I only ever have to use like one tampon on my heavy days. <laughs> um, and lo and behold, that's actually very unhealthy. <laughs> wow. I actually had really low estrogen levels. Um, so I always just use that example because we are not taught, um, you know, about menstruation being a sign of health either. So that's kind of one thing you can start looking at. Um, also really heavy bleeding. Um, you know, if you're having many days of heavy bleeding, that would also be a sign of hormonal issues. Um, then following menstruation, we usually have a few days of dryness cervical mucus wise. So you're not having a lot of cervical mucus. Then we start seeing, um, cervical mucus start to big, to build up and, um, fertile estrogenic type vertical fertile mucus is often referred to as the egg white type mucus it's stretchy clear usually like a lubricative sensation when you wipe nothing cmi for me this is what i do for a living so some people get uncomfortable talking <laughs> no, about no, no, no. Mucus, no, we're here for like, it we're here for it yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> um but you should be seeing a lot of cervical mucus um that's a sign of healthy estrogen rise and then as estrogen rises that then triggers lh to be um, secreted from the pituitary gland, and then LH is what causes ovulation to occur. And following ovulation, um, the corpus luteum is formed, progesterone production takes over, and then we should see dryness. So you, you shouldn't see cervical mucus that much anymore. Um, it should not be like that stretchy, clear, lubricative um, type mucus. It should now be more of like a dry sensation when you wipe and you're seeing very minimal amounts like on your underwear. Um, and so this change from seeing fertile mucus, you usually see an abrupt change from fertile type mucus to dry. And that is known um, as the start of your luteal phase now. So that's how you characterize the luteal phase is after your um, estrogenic mucus is done. And so at least that's how some categories it. Some methods do it a little bit different, but everyone's about the same. Um, And so a healthy luteal phase length then, so luteal phase again, is from when you stop seeing that fertile, fertile mucus, it's dry now from the first day of dryness now to your next menstruation. So until like the first day of your next menstruation, that's your luteal phase. And it should be nine to 18 days long. If it is less than nine days long, this could be a sign of low progesterone. However, other signs of low progesterone are also um, PMS symptoms, especially breast tenderness and moodiness, um, like seven days before your period. Um, other things like bloating, acne, these can also be signs of low progesterone and just imbalanced hormones in general. Um, any, I usually say if your PMS symptoms are over us, like if 10 being it's worse and zero being, you don't have any, if they're like over five, six, this is usually a sign of a hormone imbalance. Um, and then spotting prior to menstruation. Um, so menstruation, the actual start of menstruation is when you actually have a flow, like a flow of bleeding, like it's going to be light, heavy or moderate. Spotting or brown bleeding prior to is actually a sign of low progesterone because it's a sign that your that your endometrial lining is breaking down prematurely. Um, because right, progesterone is responsible for maintaining that uterine lining. So if it's not adequate, where that uterine lining is going to shed prematurely, and so that's the spotting or brown bleeding prior to menstruation. Um, I think already said breast tenderness. That's a big one of low progesterone. Um, so those are kind of like the signs of ovulation, and then signs of low progesterone slash imbalance hormones. Does that make sense? Yeah, <laughs> that's that's so interesting. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah, I kind of gave you the full rundown there. <laughs> no, I think it's good because I don't think everyone knows how important each step is. At least I didn't, mm-hmm. especially in high school and even 
Like I'm just now learning these things. <laughs> like it would have been <laughs> beneficial to know earlier. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay, so we're just gonna wrap up with our final question. And if you have any other insights or knowledge that you feel is important for women to know, just in regards to their fertility and hormone health in general. Um, I would say um, I'll give some resources of books. Um, people, if they want to start like reading on their own, um, Hormone Intelligence by Aziva Ram um, is a great place to start. Um, Beyond the Pill is a great book to start getting off of birth control if you're on birth control. Um, it's also really good just to learn about hormones and how to eat for hormone health. So those are kind of like my top two um, like books for like hormones, hormone intelligence, and Beyond the Pill. Um, so then secondly, if you're struggling with the hormone imbalance, um, yes, reading those books can super help, and I would say really start there. But don't be afraid to work with someone. Um, finding someone whose approach, you know, works for you or that you agree with. Um, because I think I see just a lot of people reaching out a little later in life, and I just wish I could have helped them beforehand. And I wish I had, I wish I had a me when I was going through everything that I went through. It took me about three full years to balance my hormones, um, and it would have taken me a lot shorter of a time if I would have been able to find someone who could have helped me and just given me direction a lot sooner. Um, which is literally why I do what I do because I wish I would have had someone to give me that direction. Um, and so you can definitely start doing your research yourself, getting your diet in control, but if things still aren't getting better, that's when more targeted testing can be done, like a hair tissue mineral test. I run a GI map with everyone, see what's going on in the gut. Um, I do lab testing as well to see markers of inflammation and all that good stuff. So I would say don't be afraid to work with someone. and one last thing I would say is that if you feel belittled by your doctor or you feel like your doctor is not giving you the attention that you deserve or need, fire your doctor. Um, a lot of people forget that your doctor actually works for you, right? You're the one who's choosing your doctor. You're the one who is paying them. So if your doctor is not serving you, if it's your OBGYN, you don't feel like they're taking your concern seriously or they don't have an approach you like, go find a new one. Um, which I don't know, sometimes it takes like a lot of motivation, um, but you're your best advocate. So doing your research, getting more information, um, that's going to be your best friend and getting to the root of your symptoms and your hormone balance. So hopefully, hopefully that's helpful. <laughs> yeah, oh, totally. Wow. Thank you so much, Jenny. That was, that was so, um, there's so much to unpack. Um, I feel like we learned so much from that. So thank you. Yeah, that was so informative. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, I hope. Yeah, so, I mean, hey, even if it was just you two who learned, I mean, then my job, you know, is done. <laughs> um, I will teach anybody and anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we would love to share your information with our listeners. So we'll, um, we'll put a little link to your own program and your website in our podcast notes. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I am. Yeah, Hormone Academy is like my four months, like one on one coaching program. Um, so if you link um, that, it's like an application for it. So it's just for people to know. And then if you just want to get hormone tips, then my Instagram is definitely your place to be, which is just the Women's Health RN. But thank you guys so much for having me. Oh, you're thank welcome. You so thank much you for, for coming on. on.
Yeah, we hope that you learned a lot from that. We so appreciated having Ginny come on. Um, I personally, I feel like I've always um, just kind of followed uh, random Instagram accounts, but I feel like that was such a holistic, like real bare bones approach to fertility awareness and hormone health. So we hope that you're able to learn a lot from that. Um, I know we both did. So yeah, and we'll link um, all of those links in the podcast notes. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next time.